2: Today's Spirit in Action program will be a telephone interview with Chuck Fager, the director of Quaker House in Fayetteville, North Carolina. For four years now he has been advocating for peace and providing information and advocacy to those attempting to avoid or get out of the military in one of the most concentrated military environments of the USA. Chuck is the author of more than 14 books and many more stories, articles and publications. He was a member of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s staff and a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. Born into a Catholic family, raised on military basis through much of his childhood, attending a military academy in high school, and enrolled in ROTC, it hardly seemed likely that Chuck would end up as an activist, peace advocate, and Quaker, but that is the direction God led him. From his involvement in civil rights, including participation in the Selma Voting Rights Crusade, to his eventual declaration as a CO during the Vietnam War, and to his current role as director of Quaker House, Chuck is dedicated to deep thought and resolute action. His books and writings have covered the gamut, including Bible study, fiction, political commentary, memoir, and even ghost and humor stories. Well, good morning, Chuck. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing fine. It's good to be here,
2: Mark. Here being North Carolina in your case. Uh, That's could right. you tell
3: folks about where you're at specifically? I'm in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is the home of Fort Bragg, one of the largest and most crucial military posts in the country. It's the headquarters for the Special Forces, for the Delta Force, and lots of other secret stuff. It's also the seat of the 82nd Airborne Division. What I do here, I'm the director of Quaker House, which is a Quaker Peace Project that's been here since 1969. How long have you been there, Chuck? I arrived in Fayetteville on New Year's Eve of 2001, so it'll be four years, I guess, four years the day this is broadcast. What is Quaker House about? Why is it there with this big military base? i like to say that if you were to try to think strategically and long-term about Quaker peace work in North Carolina, and I'm an advocate of thinking strategically and long-term, if you're trying to think that way about Quaker peace work in North Carolina, setting up a Quaker peace project in Fayetteville near Fort Bragg would make total sense. However, that's not the way life works. There's a Quaker saying, Mark, you're probably familiar with, when you don't like something say, that's an idea which would not have occurred to me, and the truth is, a Quaker house is an idea which did not occur to Quakers in North Carolina. It only got started because a soldier at Fort Bragg in 1969, who was not a Quaker, nonetheless came to the conclusion that he didn't believe in war anymore and wanted to be a conscientious objector. And he couldn't find anybody to help him, but somebody who had been raised Quaker heard about this and kind of whispered in his ear, and said, hey, if you can get to Chapel Hill, which is about two hours away, if you can get to Chapel Hill, there's a Quaker meeting there and they'll help you. So this soldier, his name was Dean Holland, he actually hitchhiked from Fayetteville to Chapel Hill on a Sunday morning, showed up in meeting and Dean Holland got up after meeting and the announcement time and said, I'm Dean Holland, I'm a soldier at Fort Bragg, I want to be a conscientious objector, will you help me? As Quakers do when they're faced with any kind of urgent emergency like that, they scrambled around for a while and formed a committee. And they did help him, and he did get to be a conscientious objector. And in the course of doing the work with him, some Chapel Hill friends discovered that there were lots of GIs at Fort Bragg in 1969 who were very unhappy with the Army. principal kinds of things which keep us pretty darn busy these days. First of all, we have a GI rights hotline. There are still people like Dean Holland calling us up who want help. And we're not just a local project anymore. In 1994, Quaker House joined with several other similar groups to form something called the GI rights hotline. And the GI rights hotline is a collaborative project where we maintain a toll-free number. It's 1-800- that you can call from anywhere in the country. And when people call that number, calls are routed according to what part of the country they're made from. And for Quaker House, our piece covers 12 states, mostly the southeast. We get calls from GIs and family members from 12 states, plus we also get calls, people find the number or find our landline, and they they call from Iraq. I've had phone conversations with GIs in Iraq call from Kuwait, call from Germany, various other places, looking for help, mostly help in figuring out how to get out of the military because they don't like it or they felt misled by recruiters. So we do this GI counseling. Last year, 2004, we had about 6,000 calls to our piece of that GI rights hotline number. And this year, we are on track to have about 6,500 calls, which will be a record when I came four years ago They had less than 3,000 calls in a year. So the call load has gone dramatically up. And we actually have two counselors who do that pretty much full-time, answering those calls and and giving people informational counseling. We also help counsel family members and people who are thinking about joining the military and give them information that recruiters tend to leave out. They do that a lot. So GI counseling is sort of the bread-and-butter day-to-day work that we do. Then secondly, we do piecework work. We help organize peace rallies and peace vigils and take part in other similar kinds of activities, mostly here around Fayetteville and Fort Bragg, but also in some other places. And then thirdly, we try to be a resource, a, a resource on peace issues and peace work to other groups. It's mostly been Quaker groups, although we're open to talking to anybody who's interested. I lead a lot of workshops and make presentations. And stuff It's not just about Quaker House, but about peace work in a time of war and between those three things plus the day-to-day work of keeping the place going keeps me pretty well busy is Fayetteville a kind
2: of hostile environment for you to be in are you considered pariahs or do you have
3: adversarial relationships with military folks mostly not uh, we do get hate mail from time to time and I run into people who say oh, I saw you on TV or I heard you on the radio but nobody has threatened me or anything now that hasn't always been the case. In May of 1970, Jane Fonda came, they had a big peace rally in a park that's right behind Quaker House, where we have had big peace rallies over the past few years. Three nights after that peace rally, the first Quaker House was firebombed in the middle of the night. It was clearly arson, but there was never any serious investigation, and nobody knows exactly what happened. So that's on our minds as we go about our work, but we don't live in fear. At the same time, we also learned just uh, about two weeks ago that we made the Pentagon's watch list, so we were spied on. When I say spied on, I have to add the word spied on again, because one of my predecessors as director filed some Freedom of Information (laughs) Act requests, got information that showed that we had been spied on by military intelligence quite extensively during the Vietnam years. As a matter of fact, we have some of those documents posted on our website which is QuakerHouse.org in a special exhibit called Make Your Own History, if somebody wants to look at that. So we have kind of assumed, as we go about our work here, that people are listening. And now, we don't have to assume anymore. Do you mean that they
2: actually place bugs in your house, or how do they spy on you?
3: In the Vietnam years, what we know about was infiltration, sending people in to meetings, for instance, and sitting outside in unmarked cars. Those are the kinds of things that we have documents to establish that they went on. Of course, it's 30 years later, and the technology of surveillance is so much more sophisticated that they don't have to do that anymore. They can be listening to this phone call, and they probably are. They could be monitoring my email, and they probably are. They could be reading our snail mail, I don't know, and they could do all this, Without our being able to tell You know Mark Even before this stuff was revealed A couple of weeks ago I I say to people Friends, privacy is like the Beatles It was great And you can still hear the music Sometimes But it's gone They're gone And it's not coming back Even without being particularly paranoid Regarding our situation We're in a surveillance society now We just are Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily like that But that's just the truth of the matter. And you don't have to be a peace activist to be under surveillance. You just don't. Sun Form. Some people call this an enlistment contract, but if you look at it closely, you see it's not a contract. A contract is an agreement between two equals, which binds them both. And one of the features of this military enlistment agreement that we wanted to highlight is the fact that it says that the army or the military can change any of the provisions of it any time at once. And this person who signs up the recruit has no recourse, and that's not a contract. That's whatever you want to call it, indenture, slavery, something. In thinking about this and looking at this agreement, it's like four pages John came up with the idea of creating a cartoon character. What he came up with was a character he called Sergeant Abe, Sergeant Abe the Honest Recruiter. So he worked very hard and we developed a version of the military enlistment agreement that has images of Sergeant Abe on it pointing out all these different parts and illuminating their meaning and some of the hidden meaning and the potential traps this form, the military enlistment agreement with Sergeant Abe, pointing out all its hidden pitfalls and traps, is available on our website, quakerhouse.org. People can download it for free, and you copy it and use it for free. In fact, people have been doing that. Military recruiters are everywhere, practically all the time. They represent an ongoing activity that I think we need to be attentive to. The recruiting aspects of the military is its weakest point, and that's where smaller groups like Quakers and other church folks, and either secular peace groups can have a big impact because you don't have to get on a bus or a plane and go to Washington for some big rally to work on counter-recruiting because recruiters are in your neighborhood. They're in your town. They're coming to you. You can save your gas money and concentrate on bringing truth into the process that they are trying to put over, particularly on young people, because there's an awful lot of untruth in what recruiters do.
2: Are many of the people who come to you who call up the GI Rights hotline, are many of them thinking they're
3: conscientious objectors, even though they're in the military? The number of people who have wanted to do that has been increasing in the last couple of years, but it's still a relatively small proportion. There are lots of people who call us who do not like the Iraq War. And many of them say things like, if we really were threatened, I wouldn't mind defending my country and taking risks. But that's not what's happening, and I don't like it, uh, and I don't want to do it. Is that a conscientious objector stance? According to the law, it's not. It's certainly a stance that we respect. If there's a real threat, people who have convictions that war can be justified to deal with real threats can act in a conscientious way. But when you have a war that was started on lies, and where so many of the soldiers who go over to it have experiences that don't fit with the stories they've been told about it. They are people of conscience, and they don't like what's happening, and they want to find some option. So we work with them to find whatever option we can. The number of people who have actually gone beyond that and said, I just don't buy war anymore. This is ridiculous. We've got to find better ways to solve problems. That number has been increasing, but it's still relatively small. How many Quakers are there in Fayetteville? Well, we have a Quaker meeting that meets here at Quaker House. Six or seven is a good turnout on the first day. We call it first day Quaker talk. It's a small, small group, especially when you drive around the city. There's some huge churches here. We're in the south. This is a churchified culture, and we're so small. But you know, it's interesting. Like it says in the Bible, where two or three are gathered, our little meeting makes a difference here.
2: Let's talk a bit about your background,
3: Chuck. I think you
2: graduated high school in
3: 1960. Sure did. Were you a Quaker at that point? No, I was raised Catholic and graduated from a Catholic high school, St. Mary's High School in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I was raised in a military family. My father was an Air Force pilot, and so we were transferred here and there. In the course of time, my father got transferred there. And so he finished up his active duty service in Cheyenne, and I went to a Catholic high school there for my senior year and graduated. By that time, though, I had decided I wasn't a Catholic, but I was certainly raised Catholic. What do you mean, you decided you weren't a Catholic? Well, my junior year, I heard about a Catholic military school in Kansas called St. Joseph's Military Academy and persuaded my parents to send me there. So I spent a year at this Catholic military school out in the prairie in the middle of Kansas. While I was there I started reading all sorts of unapproved stuff, stuff that the Catholic authorities didn't approve of, philosophers David Hume, psychologist Sigmund Freud, and I got particularly interested in the work of Carl Jung. Also, during this time away from my family, even though we were going to church twice every day and during the week and three times on Sunday, in the course of just reflecting on my circumstances and all the big issues of adolescent life that a young person can think about, I just found that one day I just sort of looked around the chapel and and realized and owned up to the fact that I didn't believe it. Catholicism for me was like a shoe that didn't fit. I didn't necessarily think my way out of it. I sort of realized that I just didn't buy all this stuff. So I became the local equivalent of the village atheist there in this little school made the mistake of telling some of my fellow students about this and having big arguments about the existence of God and whatnot, and got kicked out for my trouble that was an interesting experience because that year I was getting the best grades that I'd gotten and I was doing very well in military stuff, I was by no means a peacenik, but I'll give the priests at the school credit, they took all that stuff seriously and if I wasn't going to be with the program, they didn't want me around especially if I was going to be potentially corrupting the faith of other students, which I was doing my best to do so they kicked me out. And as a matter of fact, during that year, I had ordered a ring. It was going to be a graduation ring. And it arrived in the mail after they had written a letter and said they weren't letting me come back to the school. And when I got that ring, I looked at it and thought, wow, this ring means something very different now than it did when I ordered it. But it's still very meaningful. And as a matter of fact, I'm wearing it today. I've been wearing it for 45, 46 years as a reminder or a marker of my own spiritual pilgrimage, in that case, out of Catholicism and into a period of of seeking, which went on for some years. You thought of yourself as an atheist, but still you were seeking? Oh, yeah. Uh, In fact, I would describe myself now, for a religious typology, I would describe myself as a failed atheist. I think the atheists have all the best arguments, but I just can't stick with them. Where did you go from there? Well, I I went off to college, Colorado State University, Was something of a campus activist in an unfocused way. I had no real clue about what was going on in the world, but was active on various things on campus, local campus politics. My senior year stumbled upon and began to become aware of the civil rights movement. I remember this largely came in the context of the great 1963 March on Washington. I didn't go. I never thought about going, but I had people around me. On the campus there in Colorado, who read the newspapers about plans for this big rally, and they said it'll never happen. Those black people can't have a, a large gathering without mass violence. I mean, it was pretty racist sentiments, and I found myself thinking, "Gee, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I hope that it goes well." And I couldn't have necessarily given you a big explanation about why, but I knew that that was my sentiment. And so after that, I just became slowly more aware and during that year discovered that James Emeritus, the black person who integrated the University of Mississippi in 1962, having to have federal troops to protect him and facing riots and stuff, that he was coming to Colorado and we persuaded him to come to our campus and give a speech. And he was very impressive in a quiet, soft-spoken sort of way.
4: Oxford Town, Oxford Town Everybody's got their heads bowed down Sun don't shine above the ground He ain't going down to Oxford Town He went down to Oxford Town Guns and clubs followed him down All because his face was brown Better get away from Oxford Town foot turn around the bed come to the door he couldn't get in all because of the color of his skin what do you think about that my friend me and my girl, my girl, son we got met with a tear gas bomb I don't even know why we come going back where we come from For time in the afternoon Everybody's singing a soft tune Two men died beneath the Mississippi moon Somebody better investigate soon
3: best black graduate school and he told me well Atlanta University and I set out to go there and as a matter of fact I did go there for about a week in the fall of 1964 they were very welcoming they gave me a scholarship and so on I was uh, going to be studying English and went down there and enrolled and this was pre-black power pre-black consciousness and so they were going to teach me all the standard stuff for a graduate degree in English and they wanted me to read novels by Daniel Defoe from the 17th century and all that, and there I was in Atlanta right after the summer of 1964 where you had the great Mississippi Freedom Project, which I had been reading about daily all that summer when four civil rights workers had been murdered and all that. So it was a very powerful set of experiences, even though I was only involved in them as an observer. When I tried to read these seventeenth century novels I just realized, you know, I was not drawn to the South to do this. I need to do something else. I need to figure out how to get involved in this in this civil rights movement somehow. I wasn't stopping to think that maybe they didn't need more white folks running around their movement. Not at that time I began to think about that later. In any event I sent out letters and things and it's amazing to think that somebody actually read the letter but Dr. King's organization responded favorably. I I told them I was a writer, which was kind of true, that I could write stuff for them, do press work or whatever. Of course, I really had no skills at all in this area. It was amazing, the chutzpah, the whole thing. I'd worked on a campus paper. I didn't know anything about journalism, really. And they hired me at the grand salary of $25 a week to help out with press stuff. Then they were getting ready to go to Selma for what turned out to be the monumental Selma Voting Rights campaign and once i heard about that i just said look you got to let me go i, I just got to go so they let me i guess for twenty five dollars a week they were ready to, to experiment so i went down to alabama and spent a year there working for the movement there it was during that year a number of things happened i mean we had a, a very powerful nonviolent campaign which reshaped american law and had a big impact on the south but then while I was there also during that same year, that was the year that the Vietnam War was decisively escalated. The coming of the Vietnam War was another thing that I personally was very oblivious to. Even though I was in ROTC in college, I wasn't paying any attention. I'm embarrassed to look back and see how narrow my range of uh, awareness was at the time. But nonetheless, that's what happened. And by the late spring of 1965, you couldn't escape it. And I had to begin thinking about it. I was also subject to the draft, had the military draft in those days. While I'd been in school, I was uh, deferred, but now I was out of school. I was still deferred because I had gotten married in the summer before I went south, and married men were were deferred, at least for a while. And so I had some room to think about it, some time to think about it. But in the course of being in the Civil Rights Movement, I was not one of Dr. King's close advisors by any means, but I did have the great good fortune to sort of sit at his feet and hear him preach and speak many times and was able to take in the whole perspective of nonviolence and war. And with the Vietnam War coming on more and more, the question of whether and how the work of Dr. King and Gandhi and other nonviolent practitioners could be applied in the international arena. It just became more and more a live issue. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, I don't know that I have all the answers here, but there's got to be better ways to do this. Even though I'd been raised in a military family, I'd been an ROTC, I'd even almost gone to the Air Force Academy after high school, I just found myself thinking, nope, we've got to do this differently. So I've decided to look into being a conscientious objector. When you were ROTC, doesn't that mean that you had the obligation to accept military service? Well, I would have, except my senior year in college, I woke up to the fact that I didn't want to go into the Air Force. I just wasn't interested. And I can't say that I was a pacifist or a peacenik, because that never occurred to me at the time. Uh, I just knew that the thought of spending four years sounded so boring. I mean, who knew that Vietnam was around the corner? I didn't. Keep in mind, I had grown up on military bases, but I had grown up in the Cold War, sort of between big wars. And really, a fighting machine that doesn't have a war to fight is, at least in my view, a pretty boring place. And I found myself thinking, the last thing I want to do is sit around for four years. So I went and told my ROTC instructor that. They huffed and puffed and shuffled around, and they said, well, look, you have to either fish or cut bait here, so you're either in or you're out. And I said, well, if I'm either in or I'm out, then I want out. So they let me out. So I just was out of it. And then I, I looked into, as I say, back in Selma, the summer of 1965, mulling all this over, found I wanted to find out more about being a conscientious objector and wrote off to a place called the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, which is in Philadelphia. They had a little handbook called the Handbook for Conscientious Objectors. I still have copies of it. And just that same year... In 1965, in fact, a couple days after a big march in Selma was attacked by police in a very famous civil rights landmark event, just a couple days after that, the Supreme Court issued a decision that said that people who were not conventionally religious could still be conscientious objectors. Up until that time, if you wanted to be a conscientious objector, you had to say that this was a matter of your religious training and belief, and religion was interpreted rather narrowly to mean being a Quaker or part of some other such group that taught pacifism as part of its uh, more or less doctrine. And obviously I wasn't such a person then. I still considered myself pretty much an atheist. The Supreme Court, in March of 1965, made it possible for me to legally be a conscientious objector, and this is part of what I learned from reading this little booklet from the Central Committee on Conscientious Objectors, they rushed to update their handbook when the Supreme Court passed that decision down, known as the Seeger case. And the guy who was a defendant in that case, Dan Seeger, is a Quaker. I applied as a non-religious CO from Selma. It was an interesting thing, at least for me. In those days, you had to have letters of reference to back up your application. And I often imagine what my draft board went sitting around the table in Cheyenne, Wyoming as they looked at my application because here I was they would have known I mean, I didn't try to hide the fact that I'd been an ROTC but among the references that I had for my application was Dr. King I suppose his secretary wrote the letter but that's okay it was his name on it and I can just imagine my draft board sitting around saying to each other do we really want to have a trial in the federal court over here where this guy King could show up and be a character witness for this clown, beggar never work in a novel because it would be way too pat but that's the truth of the matter and it's remarkable too because alabama is probably the least quaker state in the country except maybe for mississippi but nonetheless a group of quaker students from a new experimental quaker college showed up in selma and wanted to do something useful for the civil rights staff that was there so they sent them out to knock on some doors to see if they You as an atheist? He was a pioneer in working on civil rights matters. So this was a very powerful, personal kind of witness. It wasn't just preaching. He had a track record, but he was an atheist. For me, though, while that was comforting in the sense that nobody was getting on my case to sign up with some creedal formulation, there were still matters of sorting out what life was all about. And it's not an easy thing to describe, but over time, I just came to feel that there was more going on than atheism could explain for me. The arguments, for instance, about uh, the existence of God regarding the problem of evil, what about the suffering of innocence? I don't have answers to those any more than anybody else does. When I describe myself, I call myself a failed atheist, failed in the sense that I haven't worked it all out in a way that makes satisfactory, rational sense. I couldn't write a book of systematic theology explaining all this. And yet, it's quite clear to me that, from my own personal experience, that God language makes more sense of my life and my experience than atheist language. One book that was important to me in some ways was a book called The Secular City by Harvey Cox. It pointed out that, in the Bible, the name of God, the tetragrammaton, the four-letter Hebrew word, which is sometimes vocalized as Yahweh or Jehovah, it has no fixed meaning and that this appears to be intentional. And this goes along with the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments against uh, having graven images, about not having idols. Cox's book pointed out that this prohibition applies as much to ideas and theologies as it does to statues. That was a big point for me, because the idea of God being mysterious, God being unable to be captured in words or even ideas, is one that makes sense to me, that there is some kind of strange order. It doesn't satisfy all our questions about why innocents suffer and things like that, and yet it's there, particularly over time, as I've done Bible study, and I've studied the Bible a lot and written about it, not that I claim to be a great Bible scholar. In the Bible, some of the books that speak most to me are books which actually include this kind of questioning and ambiguous and ambivalent attitude about God, particularly like the book of Job or the book of Ecclesiastes, where questions like the injustice of everyday experience are faced head on and they are not resolved. I found myself coming to respect the Bible for that. That certainly lots of people use the Bible as if it were a font of easy answers. I think that's stupid because it's not. In fact, if I were to reduce the whole Bible, all fourteen or 1,500 pages of it, to one sentence, it would be this. Thus says the Lord, beware the easy answers. By that I mean, even in the Bible itself, what appear to be settled answers in one book can be, and often are, challenged, sometimes quite vehemently in another. And that's the case with, for instance, the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job you have other books like the book of proverbs and a lot of the historical books where you have lots of statements about god intended this to happen and did that and all that you know and gave these commandments and if you're good everything will be nice for you and if you're bad everything will be bad for you but then you get to like the book of ecclesiastes and it says wait a minute i'm looking around and life doesn't work that way i see lots of bad people who are prosperous and i see lots of good people that are taking it in the neck what's going on here I give them credit, too, because I searched and I searched, and I couldn't find any answer. Nothing under the sun. And I thought, hey, there's integrity here. And also, there is challenge. There is dialogue. There is even argument more than dialogue. So the Bible is not a place where you have some simple answers being propounded and pounded home again and again and again. Rather, you have ideas being presented in one place and then challenged in another, both on the basis of experience and on the basis of reflection. And this is no more true than in the book of Job, which is it's obviously a story, but it's a story with very important levels of meaning. Job is portrayed as a good man who, who is not a sinner, and yet terrible, terrible things happen to him. And moreover, in the book, they happen at God's command, by God's permission, and they happen because God's made a bet with Satan. I mean, give me a break, folks. God comes off looking very bad in this book, in the book of Job. There's no morality in toying with the fates of innocent and virtuous people just for fun, just for a game. But that's what God is portrayed as doing. That's a pretty audacious thing to suggest. And And to include in your holy scriptures. And to include in your holy scriptures, absolutely. And it completely challenges I think in a very fundamental way, the very comforting parts of the Bible is say, you know, just do what you're told, follow the law, and everything will be fine, you'll be taken care of. And the Bible is full of that sort of stuff. And yet here in the Bible is a book that says, "Uh uh-uh, good people take it in the ear. Bad things happen to good people. And what's the deal? And Job himself, who is a good man, he's not a sinner, he demands, what's the deal, God? I want to know. Finally, God speaks to him. God doesn't give him an answer. He does not resolve. And I'm sorry, I'm saying God is he here for shorthand purposes. I'm aware of the importance of inclusive language. But i got to say, the God of Job has got to be a he. We're talking somebody who's like in the celestial bar, you know, sitting around the table with Satan. And they say, hey, let's fool around with Job. All right, man, if I mess with Job, I bet he'll say, to hell with God. And God will say, oh, I bet he won't. That's exactly how it unrolls. So it's got to be a he. So God finally speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and does not give him an answer in the sense of resolving this issue. It just says, Hey, I'm God, I run the universe and that's the way it is. The experience of God, it doesn't answer questions, but it puts them in a different context. Okay, if this is the way it's gotta be, then all right. It's different. It was it's different for Job suffering through all of this in a universe where there is a God who will ultimately respond at least to him and if there isn't and i have to say that that's sort of my conclusion i don't know if this makes a whole lot of sense but believing in god doesn't save me from anything i'm mindful for instance of my friend tom fox a quaker from virginia who went to iraq and was taken captive kidnapped by who knows who by a group that nobody seems to be able to identify at the end of november of this year and is still a captive as we speak today and they've threatened him with death twice and we don't know as we speak what his fate is going to be and that's awful i mean here he was a guy doing good stuff and very much religiously motivated but his religion his belief in god does not save him from the risk of violent death it it absolutely doesn't the world is set up where bad things can happen to good people having god in it doesn't change that
2: I want to step back here, Chuck. You mentioned about Tom Fox. I think he was part of the Christian Peacemakers team over there.
3: Did you know him personally? I do. I don't use past tense with him yet. I do. Tom and I were in the same Quaker meeting for many years up in Virginia when I lived there. His two kids and my two younger children grew up together in the same Quaker meeting. My son and his son were members of a Quaker hip-hop group together. That made quite a noise in a little way. There were some times of personal trial for me when Tom was very kind to me in ways that I remember very gratefully, and I saw Tom last, last summer at our annual conference the Quakers Call Yearly Meeting up in Virginia. He was between trips to Iraq, and we sat down. You know, we talked about kids and stuff like that, and we also talked about Iraq It was quite clear that to the extent that it's possible without going through it, he was very well aware of the dangers. I mean, he had been in Iraq. He hadn't been kidnapped or anything. So, yeah, Tom is a friend of mine. This is personal. It's not just principle. What kind of work was he doing there,
2: and what's happening now in his case, and in the case of the abduction of the four of them?
3: The Christian Peacemaker team folks in Iraq, as I understand it, were documenting cases of abuse. They were among the first to be talking to reporters about abuse and torture at Abu Ghraib. They hadn't been to Abu Ghraib, but they, they talked to people who had been there and had been tortured, and they were raising this. And nobody was paying attention to them for a long time, but of course they turned out to be quite right about what was going on there. They've also been working in Iraq, and I think most recently they were spending a lot of time talking to Iraqi officials put in by our occupation. About abuse of other Iraqis By new police forces Of which I gather there's more and more There's been speculation That this might have had something to do With their being kidnapped That there could very well be groups That want to shut them up From talking about bad things That are being done Iraqi on Iraqi Not just through the occupation And they were also opposing the U.S. occupation They said this is no way to promote peace and democracy here Get these troops home Take these U.S. troops out of here So they were doing all those kinds of work. It was obviously very risky, and they accepted those risks.
2: You've been doing some follow-up, trying to help get the word out about them.
3: Yes, we have. There's another friend of Tom. This fellow, John Stevens, who was our intern here and created the Sergeant Abe Honest Recruiter character, was also a friend of Tom. Once this happened, he and I were on the phone to each other about it. And in trying to just sort of cope with the situation for ourselves as well as for Tom, In talking also, or consulting with some experts in the peace studies and negotiations field, we were advised that if we could help make Tom's work, particularly his work on behalf of Iraqis, more visible to the world and to his captors, and make their work more visible in the Muslim world in Iraq, we could at least potentially reduce their value to their kidnappers as prisoners. In thinking about how to do that, John and I were on the phone one night and said, well, hey, you know, we could put up a website. And the technology of the web is such that within the hour, we had a website up. It's called freethecaptivesnow.org, and it's devoted specifically to really keeping vigil for Tom and the others so that they're not forgotten. We update it every day. Initially, we were part of the effort, which was much larger than what we did, to try to make Tom's work visible, and the character of the work more clear, particularly in Iraq and the Arab world. And as this developed, it got to be quite remarkable that there were lots of Muslim groups, including some that are devoted to violence, who made public statements aimed at their kidnappers, saying to them, look, these folks were friends of the Iraqi people, they were opposed to the U.S. occupation, they were opposed to torture, the Christian peacemaker teams, and even Tom have also worked in Palestine, where they have worked against the Israeli occupation and illegal settlements. These are friends of Muslims and friends of Iraqis. Don't kill them. It's un-Islamic to do that, and it's also stupid. I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing what these people have said, but many quite prominent and otherwise not known for being nonviolent people made these kinds of statements. It got to be quite a remarkable chorus in making it clear to the captors that if they kill Tom and the other three, they are not going to be winning glory for Islam or for their group, even in Iraq. The Christian Peacemaker team is not a missionary group. They don't go there to try to make converts. They're just trying to live out their conviction rather than sell them. I think that the campaign that our website was part of has been a very successful in its own terms. All we don't know yet is whether it's going to succeed in helping get Tom and the other four released safely. So people can get the
2: latest information by going to freethecaptivesnow.org? That's right. So Chuck, now you've been at Quaker House for four years. What got you there?
3: Well, that's, uh, that's kind of a telling question, I think. And I have to answer it with a bit of a story, so bear with me. For a couple of years, I did adjunct teaching at Penn State University. But in the spring of 2001, I got laid off. So I joined the ranks of the unemployed, and I was looking around. I couldn't find any anything in central Pennsylvania near Penn State. When I went to our annual conference, Quaker Yearly Meeting, that summer, there was a woman there who sat me down one night, and in Quaker phraseology, she labored with me for a long time. She told me that there was this project in Fayetteville called Quaker House, and they needed a director, and nobody wanted to go to Fayetteville, and so they couldn't find anybody And that I should apply for. And I told her I didn't want to do that. I had lived in Virginia for a long time. I didn't much like the South. I like to say that living in Virginia put me deeply in touch with my inner Yankee. But she wouldn't give up. She kept saying that she thought I had some skills that would be useful and that this was a project that was important and shouldn't be allowed to die because nobody would go there. And I said, well, really, I, I don't want to do it. I'm pretty well settled in central Pennsylvania. But I finally agreed to send him a resume. After all, I didn't have a job. And so I did at the end of August. And also about that time, my son had graduated from high school the previous year, and he was getting ready to go into AmeriCorps. And so we decided to go on a trip, sort of a father-son life transition kind of thing. And we did, went up into Canada and wound up in Maine at a friend's house on the morning of September 11th, got back home the next day safely. And it was either that day or the day after that that I got an email from the chair of the board of the Quaker House saying they wanted to talk to me. And on September 13th, that message and the whole idea of Quaker House looked entirely different to me than it had before then. I began to feel like an old Army reservist being called back up to active duty. I tell you this story because I think this is the way what Quakers call leadings work that it's just as likely to be the result of trauma as it is to be some kind of heavenly nudge while you're sitting quietly and meeting. And you may just as well be dragged kicking and screaming into a leading or doing what God wants you to do as to be walking into it in some state of inner serenity and tranquility. In lots of ways, it's tough being down here, being so close, being surrounded by the spirit of war in a very concentrated way and it's not an attractive part of our culture. That's putting it mildly. But still, this is where my assignment is, and I hope to be able to stick it out until I'm released. Chuck, I want to thank you
2: for taking time on the program. It sounds like you've got more than enough to keep you busy down there in Fayetteville. Some of the areas that we didn't talk about include the books that you've written. You've had a fairly prodigious career in that way, in addition to all your activism. If people wanted to find out about your writings and the other things you've produced, where could they go?
3: The first place to go would be to the Quaker House website, quakerhouse.org. And if they scroll down to the bottom, they'll see it says Chuck Fager Director, and that's a link, and they can click on that, and there's a fairly detailed biographical sketch. And at the bottom of that, there is a list of most of the things that I've published. You're right, I've written a lot of books. I I mean, you've written stuff on civil rights, you've written Bible study
2: information, you've written murder mysteries, you've written just a whole diversity of things.
3: Yeah, that's right. My basic career has been that of a writer. If they saw books that were of interest to them there, there's another website, that's my personal website, called chemopress.com, that's K-I-M-O p-r-e-s-s dot com I have my own little publishing enterprise called chemo press and they can find listings of some books you can actually buy a few of them if you want I'll include
2: the links for your sites on my website which people know is northernspiritradio.org where they can also hear this program again thanks Chuck for taking the time to be with me get back to work there and convert Fayetteville okay
3: (laughs) okay you gotta convert Wisconsin we need Wisconsin too You bet.
2: Thanks again, Chuck. You've been listening to a telephone interview with Chuck Fager of Quaker House in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you will also find useful links and further information about this program. The music featured in this program was chosen by Chuck for its relevance, including Oxford Town by Bob Dylan, Ohio, by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Bring the Boys Home, by Frida Payne. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours, by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
0: I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness